In the world of American football, beneath the roar of the crowd and the glare of the floodlights, the coach stands as the unsung hero. It's not just about teaching players to kick a ball or make a tackle. It's about understanding each player's strengths, their fears, their ambitions. A coach turns a group of individuals into a singular cohesive force, priming them not just to play, but to win. This mastermind molds raw talent into strategy, fostering trust and camaraderie, ensuring that every play, every move on that field is in sync. Just as a football team depends on its coach, businesses, especially in the realm of B2B SaaS, lean heavily on their managers. These managers, like experienced coaches, have the challenging task of recognizing the unique potential within each member of their team. They draft strategies, making sure that each individual's prowess is positioned in a way that collectively drives the company forward. They don't just manage, they inspire, they lead, and they ensure that the entire team moves as a unified entity poised for success. Enter Dave Klein of MGMT Accelerator. With the tactical prowess of a top-tier football coach and the insightful vision of a seasoned manager, Dave understands the nuances of building a winning team. Recognizing that the principles that apply on the football field also apply in the bustling corridors of business, he's perfected the art of transforming raw talent into a cohesive, formidable force. He knows that every individual, no matter their role, can be the star player, provided they have the right guidance. In today's episode, prepare to delve into the strategic world of team management and discover how to harness individual strengths for collective success. With insights from Dave Klein, you'll understand why the role of manager, much like a football coach, is pivotal in steering your team to victory. From Paddle is Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. I'm Ben Hillman, and on today's episode, Dave Klein speaks with Paddle's Andrew Davies about managing great teams. They talk about embracing limitations, the power of and, codifying culture, language precision with values, and advice for entrepreneurs. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a field guide from today's episode. Then while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what resonated most about our guest's advice. I'd say uh, the quick intro on me would be the uh, the accidental uh, leadership trainer. You know, like I did 20 years of corporate, 10 of those at Moody's, 10 of those at Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, and left believing two things would be true. One, we were going to buy a business, and two, I was just going to teach at one of the universities nearby. Being in Connecticut, you know, Yale's in one direction, NYU, where I went to business schools in the other direction. Those two things kind of collided. So we bought an online education business. Uh, Google changed the algorithm about six weeks after we bought it. I freaked out and decided I need to diversify and get into social media. That led to me taking a class with a guy named Saul Hill Bloom, who's pretty big on Twitter. He convinced me that I'd have to write under my own name and not under uh, the brand name if I wanted to actually grow and get engagement and save my company. The one thing that started to really work was talking about leadership and management. And that then led me to meeting the Maven folks. And instead of going to one of the universities, they thought, why don't you just teach that on our platform? And we, I put out a tweet one night, went to bed thinking I'd have maybe 10 people take this class, woke up to a wait list of 150 people, you know, talked to a bunch of them. And we taught our first one last March. And we've taught like one of our cohorts almost monthly since. It had the, the rough sketch of what I thought I'd be doing, but it sort of collided into a, uh, an amalgamation I wasn't anticipating. 
And we've got, you know, listening to this call, mostly software founders who deal with tech debt. I know some people have coined the phrase people debt. I'm sure that's a, a challenge you're often helping people go through as they as they scale their businesses. So before we dive into some of the lessons that you've learned and the frameworks you have, what are the, the commonalities that you see people come to? What's the presenting issue they come to you with when they join one of your programs? There's usually two or three. I would say the probably the most common one. We had this thesis when we first built it, it was going to be brand new managers. That like the the part of the market that wasn't being addressed was people just making that transition. And a lot of those people who applied initially were five to 10 years. And so it didn't make any sense to us because it was literally called the new manager accelerator. We talked to a bunch of them and they all said almost to a T the same thing, which is like, I've been making it up. I'm overwhelmed. I've never had a good example. But the common theme was like they were just barely staying above water. Like they were they were just making up for what they didn't have in systems or didn't have an experience through just like effort and hours. And so I'd say probably the most common thing people show up with is they're just overwhelmed and are trying to find a better way to like claw back an hour a day, be more impactful with their people, give them feedback more effectively, things like that. But I think it all, it all sort of rolls up to that. If we then broaden that to think about that concept of people debt being the accumulation a friction that happens when you're scaling fast. What are the other things and a feeling of overwhelmedness, you know, is one. What are the other things that you see as accumulated people debt in fast growing growing companies? Well, I think about it, the most common diagnosis of the people debt is something we'll talk about as secret expectations. There's this we do it all the time. It's like it should be obvious that that you would do X. And more often than not, it's not obvious. They don't have your background, your experience, your context, your understanding. And so it might be totally obvious to you and not at all, all obvious to them. And so I think those secret expectations, if you don't then remedy them, then they build up and they become more complicated, right? Now it's not only I didn't know what you wanted from me, then you held this opinion of me and didn't tell me about it. So now I've got this logical problem and an emotional problem, and I've twisted it all into a big knot. You know, when I work coaching people, one of the places we start is like, can you set really clear expectations? If it's your sales team and you want 10 new clients, like, is that clear over what time frame? what type of client are they, what size is the account? And then the thing, the other people, a lot of people overlook in that too, is they'll overlook the how, you know, like we, when we were building the program, we got into this big debate because my wife has a sales background and she's like, I don't know, they just, you know, I was at Google, they just told me like it's a $25 million target for the quarter, get it done. And I'm like, what if, they, you know, like did those people have to be good clients? Like, were you supposed to like stay within the Google culture? Were you supposed to follow the law? Were you in like, these might seem obvious, but like every company has these unspoken truths of how they want you to do it as well. And so I think that becomes a big part of it too. I've heard you say that setting expectations is your only job as a manager. Dive into it, unpack that a little bit for me. I'm pretty sure I say you're only that you have your only job. I have two different things I say. One of them is setting expectations, and the other is saying no more than yes. But to some degree, they're the same thing. You have to sort of decide like where are we going to go. I've brought together this team. We have a certain mission. We need to go accomplish it. And to some degree, if you're able to go get really good people and select the right mission and motivate them to do it, like that is really your only job. And then that the re, where the yes and no comes in is like, no matter what mission you're on, there's constantly going to be stimuli and interesting paths and detours to take. And that's again, where that judgment's going to come in, where you're going to say, do, well, do we take the detour? Or do we stay on the course? And that's just another version of you resetting the expectation. I think people skip that part and then wonder down the road why they have to solve problems or they have to course correct or they, they're giving feedback, but it's not getting through. And mostly they weren't clear enough up front about like, what do you want? So I find it interesting when we talk about people debt to the first places you go are maybe that accumulated overwhelmedness and the 
missetting or un, or not setting of expectations and the mismanagement of expectations. I know one of the things you talk about is the extraordinary leaders, extraordinary managers, they have synthesis selling and systems. And that third piece systems is about making sure the you know being able to spot what matters and how how you compel other people, the synthesis and the selling, they're able to endure. Talk to me about how your work with with founders, your work with executive teams help build those three skills. And which do you see lacking most? I get asked the lacking most question a lot. And I think it really comes down to each individual person. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we'll work with founders, they might be software developers by background. So they might be more introverted, but they're very good at like identifying what matters, right? Like how do you get code to compile efficiently? And they might be very good at systems, but they don't like telling their own story, you know? And so that might be that archetype. You might have the, you know, the gregarious founder who's extremely good at selling and seeing what matters, and then just kind of hopes there's an implementer who's going to put the systems in place to make it run behind and so forth. I don't know that there's any single one. And I think it's one of the reasons that like having co-founders often really helps, right? You might have that one like big picture person and the one that, you know, you have the visionary and the integrator in that same realm. So I don't know if there's one that's more than the other versus like, what's the mix that you're dealing with? And then in terms of the systems themselves, you know, I think it's the place where the guidance we try to give people, especially for like scaling early stage companies is like minimum viable. Um, I was just on a coaching call a few minutes ago and we were talking about, I've run whole teams giving my folks a development plan that was just three bullet points. What's the gap? What resources do you need for me? And what training do you need? And if that's sufficient to accomplish it, like why invest any more in a more complicated system that just becomes administrative and bureaucratic? When you're a small scaling startup, it's like, yeah, you want to go from the wild, wild west of like four people in a garage, but you don't want to become so overbuilt that you sort of lose why you're actually doing what you're doing. So when I read this post about synthesis, can you spot what matters? Selling, can you compel others? And systems, can you engineer it to ensure? I feel like there are go-to frameworks that I could think of for selling and for systems. How do you think about teaching people to be better synthesizers, to spot what really matters, the art of strategy? I would agree with you that that is one of the artist ones. One way that I would try to do it very often is sort of get people to sort of empty their brains and look for themes. And so a lot of times I find like folks on my team would be very expert. Like they'd have like lots of details and they, but they would struggle to sort of get up to like, yeah, but the point is on track or off track, right? That's what we're trying to get to. For those bottom up thinkers, what we do is have them like, we just empty everything onto the page, right? Like give me all the details that are like creating that fog. And then I say, okay, now look at those 25 things. Can you group them in any way? Any way that seems intuitive. Oh, these are all about sales growth. Oh, these are all about talent. Oh, these are all, okay, great. Which one of those five buckets you've now created seems most pressing or burning? Oh, bucket B. Okay, great. Of the five things in bucket B, what is the one that if you could change it would turn it from red to green? And they're like, oh, number two. And so sort of going through that exercise of like building up, grouping thematically, all of a sudden you've now emptied that fog and said like, oh, this thing is not working because of this. And we're going to make this one change and that should unlock it. And all of a sudden we went from this big pile to the answer. Some of the challenges I've often found there, either in my own journey of leading up or in managing others is around the concepts of materiality, people who can give lots of ideas but don't understand which carry greater weight um, or the concept of hierarchy like which things can nest other under others and so i find this this topic of 
of synthesis as, a, as part of strategy, really, really interesting. Another interesting dimension that sometimes we'll use with people is this idea of forcing them to give a confidence rating. And it ends up doing two things. There's one, which is if you give a low confidence, you're like, oh, I think it's this, but like I'm only 20% confident. That should trigger the like, okay, well, what would I need to know to move that to 50 or 70 or 80%? It sort of reveals to you maybe gaps in your own understanding. Other thing it does is it actually, in terms, because one of the other reasons we're trying to communicate, right? We're trying to, the reason I want to synthesize is because I want to compel, right? I want to get people to do something differently. So by bringing down my confidence rating, maybe they're going to engage me more collaboratively. If I move my confidence rating up, they're going to be like, oh, this person's really serious and like believes this thing and may poke harder holes in it. And so you can sort of adjust the interaction of the counterparty by where you set that confidence rating. So maybe we can just change tack slightly here and think about one of the most commonly used decision frameworks, which is the Eisenhower matrix. And uh, I've seen this rolled out in massive company environments. I've seen it tried in tiny company environments. And I know you've got a, a slightly updated, a slightly revised version of it. Uh, I've got it up in front of me. You'll probably know it off by heart or have it tattooed on your left arm. Talk me through kind of these two by two matrix and how you see people use it. And we'll make sure it's shared in the show notes people for, for people to refer to. Talk me through why you so arrogantly overruled a sitting president to update his matrix. Yeah, I'm on it. At the heart, I actually think I, I probably agree with it more than I disagree with it. But it's this idea that you can map urgency against importance, right? And that you, in the old model, you would want to be delegating the things that are important but not urgent. So it was this idea that I think was premised very much on old school hierarchy where like stuff rolls downhill, right? Where you're like, oh, this is like, this work is beneath me. Let me give it to the people beneath me. And I think that that is probably, was probably made a lot of sense, especially in like an industrial factory, factory driven commoditized world. But the majority of people in your audience, the majority of people I work with, like that's not who works in our companies anymore. Like these are highly educated people who want to grow and develop and collect experiences and have impact and do the most important work. And the best leaders are hiring people better than them. And so if you're delegating to them only the work that like is beneath you, you're sort of underutilizing all that investment you made in bringing in the best people. My revision is very much, okay, if something is urgent and important, that was, a, was a failure on my behalf. Like there shouldn't be that many surprises in business if I'm operating systematically. I keep that work, but I'm keeping that work to then figure out how do I make it not urgent? Like, how do I learn to anticipate it? How do I design my system to deal with it? So I sit in that position until I can reduce the urgency. And then I want to delegate it to my team to, who is uniquely equipped to deal with that. For the things that are not urgent, but they're important, you know, there is this idea of like, you know, you, that would be sort of the stuff you'd give away. And I, the one tweak for me is like, I want to, if I'm going to give that work to somebody, I want to give it to them with the mandate to automate it. Like a lot of times I'm delegating to people who are maybe more junior in experience in one dimension, but typically more savvy technically or may have a different set of skills. And I'm like, please don't do it the terrible way I was doing it. Make it go away. Like if you can automate it, if you can make it great, please do that. And so give that subtle tweak to empower them to do that, I think is very helpful. And then that last corner of like, it's not important and it's not urgent. It's a little bit like that part is still tried and true. Like, why are you doing it? Delete that thing. And because the most powerful way you can delegate to anybody is to not delegate to anyone. If you just make it go away for good, it's done. One of the seminal moments in a first-time manager or a new manager's life is where they have to go through those really difficult conversations of letting someone go, whether it's performance, whether it's company-related. I know that's a moment in when I had to do that for the first time. I still remember which room I was in, who it was, what the what, what it felt like. Yeah, I'm sure it's something you've coached many, many founders and execs through, managers through. 
How do you think about that process of self-reflection and also the communication of how, of working through that difficult conversation, as well as how do you even make that judgment call in the first place? It's interesting because I was just talking to someone I was coaching this morning about this and how they've never been through this process. They're on the precipice of maybe being on this process. And I was saying like one of the things you can only learn with the benefit of 20 plus years and having to gone through it many times is that usually by the time, like you're usually the last person to be ready. If you're a reasonably thoughtful leader and manager, um, you're usually the last one to the party. We work with the CEO. He's been running a company for 40 years. He said he had to fire his number one producer four different times over those 40 years. And every time he would like labor and eventually do it, he's like every single time, six, eight, 10 people would come up to me within a day and be like, what took you so damn long? And so it's like, hey, you're just like, you're the last one because you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. You're trying to be thoughtful. The sort of way that I have found most effectively to get through it, which again, is sort of raising my confidence and bringing them along in like a compassionate way and a fair way. Because obviously I want to solve for them working. You know, like it is so much cheaper for me to have them be a great employee than it is for me to have to go through the process of replacing them. I just sort of work left to right. On the left, I would have the things that I control. Do they have the right training, the right resources, the right access, the right permissions, the right support? Whatever all the things that when things start to go wrong, people start to point to the environment. I basically want to make sure that that is true. And my judgment of like how much is too much is like if I just went into the world and got a person who was reasonably qualified, would that set them up to succeed? And if I do that, then I've sort of removed all of these environmental, what could be excuses, and I've gotten it down to one of two possibilities, skill and will. They either aren't capable of doing it or they don't really want to do it. And I usually will attack it in reverse order, which is the will one first. Like if they don't want to do the job, then we can we can stop having the conversation because I would rather have someone in that role who wants to do it and their life is too short. Like go do a job where you can like be your best and you want to be there. So before we waste either of our time investing a bunch more, like let's sort of agree on that. And then if they do want it um, and they're willing to put in the effort to close the gap, now you're just into the skill part. You know, that's where I think managers get paid, right? They get paid to motivate and coach and develop. They get paid to make the hard judgments of like fast enough or not fast enough. But I think if you, a lot of people skip those early steps, like they don't handle the environment stuff. They don't sort of look at the will piece and the alignment and they rush right into putting everything in that last bucket, it becomes a very messy conversation. So that's that both, I think, helps bring those people along on the other side of the table, and it sort of helps you have more confidence that you've done everything you can. A lot of what we've talked about here is to managers, leaders within organizations, but everybody has a boss, and I love thinking about and working on how I and how my teammates lead up. And you've talked a bunch about leading up. So I'd love you just to explain that concept for everyone on this call, regardless if, even if they're the founder, CEO, but have to lead up to a board, whether they're somewhere else in the organization and have a formal direct line report. What is leading up and, and why does it really matter? It's funny. I'm actually writing, we do our weekly management playbook and I'm writing the play, uh, my playbook for managing up today. So it's top of mind. So I, I, get the, I guess I get to test a few of the ideas here. The three that first came to me when I started writing it, one is this idea of like their goals are your goals. Like it's very easy for us to get focused and be like, tell me what you want me to do. Tell me what my goals should be. But I think the, the stars who operate at the best level, and that could be true of a CEO with a board, what is their goal? Like what are the, what outcome do they want to achieve? Because if I can achieve my work while materially altering and improving their ability to, to achieve their goal, I become invaluable, right? I'm sort of embedding myself into the goal above me in a way that makes me probably going to have a higher trajectory, be more valuable, get more attention, get the, get the cool work, et cetera. So that's one. The second one, which it's cliche, but it's just, uh, if you've led a bunch of people, I've led a bunch of people, it's just true, which is like, bring me solutions, not problems. Now that doesn't mean never raise a problem. That doesn't mean 
I always expect you to have the answer, but it's just so much easier as a leader to have someone come and say, Dave, we have this problem. We're going to lose this platinum client. Like that is a problem. Here's what I'm going to do about it. Please tell me you have a better way. You know what I mean? Or like, I thought about these three possibilities and I'm going to go down path C unless you see a better way. I'm going to go path C and I need you to support me in these two specific ways. It's just a totally different level of ownership and signaling. And it like allows me to sort of be an editor versus be the recipient of your problem. So that was a, that was a second one that I think, again, that people had to pick a couple. If you do those two, like for number three, it would be no surprises. I don't ex- like, there's this idea that I think people create this fake expectation for themselves that they have to be perfect. But if I want to manage up really well, like what I want the as a leader looking down, like what I want is to know that my people are in command, that they are in, they understand their whole area. Yeah. Like if I, I would go basically take control of my one-on-ones with my manager instead of the other way around. Like this is my meeting with you. Here are the goals we agreed on. Here's the metrics I have to show you how the goals are going. So you don't have to take my word for it. You can see the data. Here are the biggest problems. Here's how I'm dealing with them. Oh, by the way, here's the whole team. Here's how everyone's performing. Here's who's happy and unhappy. Here's who's developing and not developing. Here's what I'm doing about it poke holes. You know what I mean? Like, where else do you need me to help? Because I've got contr- I've got command of my area. And so that idea of like, the, but the rumors that I'm doing that is I just never want them to be surprised. I want, if there's bad news, they should hear it from me. If it's good news, they should hear it from me. Because that's usually a, a way to erode trust with a leader is to like have them get caught off guard with their boss or with their peer on something that you could have kept them in the loop on. So those are my three. You, um, you put up a post, I think it was yesterday, that I'm going to read out and then ask you to react to, which is, it says, your boss plays favorites and their favorites do excellent work, bring energy to the team, make their lives easier daily, amplify everyone around them, and the rest complain about the boss playing favorites. I love that because <laughs> like, as a personal challenge to myself and also to all of the people who I'm working with or I'm serving as a leader, I think that's a really interesting way of framing it because we all have come across people who, you know, perhaps complain they're not being seen or that there's there's a favoritism at play. And I know you're probably not digging into it in quite the way I'm entering this conversation, but what you're doing there is articulating some of the things that win favor and that cause you know leaders to gravitate and give responsibility to people who are stepping up and bringing energy and bringing bringing outcomes i mean like some of the comments came of all the ones that one seemed to catch a lot of people's attention because uh, a few people kind of clapped back and were like no people nepotism and people playing favorites for these other reasons and like of course but i think there's this i there's be, i'm trying to like a new part of my mission is sort of trying to push back against what seems to be this like rising rush to mediocrity like this idea of quiet quitting and i'm like who are you beating when when you quiet quit like you have this one short precious life i am reminded of it every day and so what you're going to do is like go in and do the bare minimum somewhere like i guess if if you have another passion and that is how you want to orchestrate your life i'm all for it if you're doing that to like stick it to somebody or you think you're winning some sort of long-term crusade like i think you it's a terrible strategy because there's somebody else who's going to put in the extra effort they're going to get the next promotion they're going to get the cooler job and you're going to wake up in 20 years having quietly quit and not probably achieve the goals you could have had you been brave enough to take chances and go across boundaries and put yourself out there. I know that was sort of the spirit of I'm like, they might be playing favorites. In fact, they probably are. Most of the favorites earned it. So just go earn it. Just go just like you could pretend they're not playing. Like you could wish they didn't play favorites. You could pretend they don't or you could just go be the favorite. It's not that complicated. Like do great work, bring huge energy. They will prefer you. Or if they don't, like you should go find someone who does because that is so, those things are so rare these days that like people hang on to stars. And it's a, a frame that I'm trying to teach my kids on a daily basis, that challenge of externalizing versus internalizing when they 
see things as unfair or see something happening that feels like it's it's causing them to lose. It's asking themselves what they're going to do about it rather than blaming the circumstance of what's around them. So I love I love that uh, internalization call to action. I agree that you can we can't control what's happening, but we can we can control how we respond. Hundred percent. Let's end this out with the the power of and. I love that some of what you're doing with coaches, coaching founders, and coaching managers is around mindset. And um, I love working with people who, you know, perhaps they have a bit of a reality distortion field, as people said about Steve Jobs. They demand something that seems unexpectedly illogical because it's too too big and too great. And you've used a bunch of examples, I know, in terms of, you know, yes, Steve Jobs rejecting the quality cost time trade-off and demanding all three, or uh, perhaps Elon Musk with Tesla, knowing he had to make a car that was sexy and electric. Talk to me a bit about how you challenge leaders with the power of the word and. I'll tell a story from last week, but I'll tie it back. So we went to this went to this event with one of our partners, uh, this company, True Networks. They have this event called Oasis, uh, where they bring together all these leaders right before the busy season. And the host really just tries to inspire people to think differently. It's like this one moment to sort of step back. And so, you know, different musicians and artists, and there was this artist and he told the story, sort of shows his early artwork, and he was a pointillist, like, you know, the, the dots, right? They sort of, like, reveal a picture. And he got so obsessed with it that he just kept doing it and doing it and doing it to the point that he started developing a tremor in his arm and went to the doctor, and the doctor sort of was like, well, you've actually now taken this so far that you have permanent nerve damage, like you'll never be able to hold your hand steady again. He sort of like had this devastation of like, I, I'm an artist. I'm like, my life is over. You know what I mean? Like he went through this like very depressive period. As he was walking out from one of the appointments, the doctor was said like something in passing. And he was like, why don't you embrace the shake? You know, like in a, in a half, he was like, what? go away. But it like sat with him and it sort of like started to play within his subconscious. And he was like, what if I'm confusing the limit with the self-limiting belief? The limitation in this case is my handshakes. The self-limiting belief is, and therefore I can be an artist. And so he started to play with, well, what if I could do pointillism in things that weren't quite so precise? And so he started all, he, he did a, this huge portrait of Snoop Dogg made out of exclusive of colored gin and juice. And he did another one that was this huge picture of a fireman that he blowtorched onto all these like stacked two by fours. What he realized was like the limitation actually was forcing creativity and the creativity was turning him into a better artist. And so there's this idea of pulling apart the limit from the limiting belief. And so to some degree, I think that's like the spirit was behind that idea of power of and, right? That we sort of will look at things and be like, well, it must be true. It has to be this or this. Somehow like these these visionaries, and we can all do it, you can sort of pull it apart. Like I know, you know my wife and I will joke about it. Like we, there's certain phrases we're hesitant to use about our business. We obviously train managers. We very rarely use the phrase management training. So I was telling the story about um, the artists and then, you know, so this idea with ands and these entrepreneurs being able to see past and separate those things in a similar way. You know, like my wife and I wrestle with this. With our business, we train managers, we train leaders, but we rarely use the phrase management training because in our minds, that typically invokes people sitting in like a boring conference room, learning from someone who's never managed some sort of like 20 year outdated framework. And it took us a long time to be like, but what if we could be management training and engaging or management training and entertaining or management training and helpful? And I do the same thing with coach. Like I was very hesitant for a long time of like most of the executive coaches I know, and, I, and there's some great ones out there, but a lot of them, like the ones who are constantly hitting me in my LinkedIn feed are like, I just took this course and I need 200 hours of like teaching you things. And then I'll be a, a coach and I'm like, good on you. But like, 
that's not who I want to learn from. And so I'm like, I do coach executives, but I don't want to be an executive coach. And but I was like, but what if it could be and, right? What if we could be, yeah, I'm not just going to answer your questions with questions. I will give you the best counsel I have having been in your shoes, having led big businesses, having had to make hundred million dollar decisions. Like, yep, I'll do, you know, we could do both. And so I think you can, you can be at the Elon level and the Sarah Blakely level answering those ands, or you can do it in your day-to-day business. And it's just a great exercise to say like, where, just like that artist, right? Like, where am I settling for the limitation? And really it's just my belief. And if I give away that belief for a minute, it might open up a new door. I really, really appreciate the conversation. Any final thoughts? We don't have to use this if you don't have any, but any final thoughts or wisdom for the for the people out there hustling, building their software businesses from the ground up? If I was going to go whisper in their ear, like one thing that they will think is not important, but ultimately becomes very important because I'd get to work with the people a year or two down the road from them. It would be like, take the time to codify your culture. You will grow. There's something intrinsic in like the first five or 10 people and those behaviors that have made you uniquely suited to win the game that you're playing. But as you grow, that will dilute. And so it's actually worth the time for you to write that down and try to write it down in like meaningfully sharp language. And by sharp, I mean like it should be magnetic. Magnetic in that it should attract the very small subset of people who would be wanting to operate on your mission in that way. And it should strongly repel most of the other people. If it doesn't do both things, you're taking a far too safe approach. There was a, a company we worked with, it's a relatively new healthcare company, and they talked about integrity. Like she's like, oh, well, one of our values is integrity. And I'm like, yeah, you and everybody else. And as she described integrity to me, it was, oh, I had actually made a bad deal with a co-founder, but it was so vital to me that I like maintained being on the far side of fair that I kept the deal, even though my lawyers and counselors and advisors were all telling me to back out. And I'm like, oh, far side of fair, that's your value. And all of a sudden, like it clicked. Do you know what I mean? And it's just so different that like integrity is this very vague term, far side of fair. You're like, oh, I know what that means. I know that. And that will attract people who are willing to go way beyond the boundary. And it will repel people who, who like want to be at the boundary and constantly calling like across the line, not across the line. And that's perfect for them because they need people given the, they're in the mental health space, they want, they need people who are going way beyond the boundary. So if I just use that as an example, but I'd say like, take the hour, write it down, make it sharp, bounce it off your people and start to like hunt for the stories that reinforce it for all the new people coming in. Shout out to Dave for being on the show. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from today's episode was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS. Thank you.